0: Hi, I'm Nathalie, and welcome to Infinitely Irrational, where we discuss the real eccentric and complex history of math. In each episode, we unearth the wild stories behind some famous or not-so-famous mathematicians. I know I say this about everyone, but today we talk about one of my favorite mathematicians, Charles Dodgson, who you may know as Lewis Carroll. And this episode, will attempt to answer the following questions. When is a picture worth a thousand words? What's the fastest way to lose favor with royalty? What do either of these things have to do with math? Let's find out. Everyone, we have Joanna back with us again to chat about I say this about every mathematician, but one of my favorites. I'm super pumped that Joanna and I are going to talk about this mathematician. Joanna, I will let you do the unveiling of the mathematician today. Ooh, thank you, Natalie.
1: Hi everyone. Very happy to be back as always. Today, we'll talk about someone who not many people think of as a mathematician, I suppose. That's a fair thing to say. (laughs) And not many will recognize his original name either. Charles Ludwig Dodson, a Victoria-era mathematician who loved Euclid's geometry and wordplay. But most people know him as Lewis Carroll. That's one of your favorite books, Natalie, isn't it?
0: Yeah, Alice in Wonderland. So listeners, if you've read Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass, spoiler alert, it was written by a mathematician and we can't wait to talk to you about some of them. And we know it's a super popular book, 100 million copies sold since 1865. So many film adaptations started in 1903 with a silent film and what at least what six films that we know of potentially more including most recently Tim Burton. <laughs> Absolutely. I think he was right up his stream there. <laughs> mm. So his pen name, let's talk about that for a little bit. His pen name, Lewis Carroll, was derived from his real name. Carolus is the Latin for Charles. And Lewis is a form of Lutwidge, which is his middle name, as well as his mother's middle name. His father actually was a mathematician. But he took a country parson job and actually said his dad turned his back on a promising academic career in math, which is pretty cool that his dad provided him with this strong background in math, but also with his country parson in theology and Latin. Like if he didn't do these exact things, would we have had the Alice's?
1: I think that beautifully contributes to the ongoing debate of math versus language and that actually accuracy in language is essential for maths. I know both you and I don't <laughs> believe in that distinction very much.
0: Yeah, it's part of one of the reasons I'm excited. There are like several, but one of the reasons is because you and I have had so many conversations about the meanings of words and things like that, and how they relate to math. And so this is just a really nice sort of full circle for us to talk about it. Also, I was thinking about this, and I can't remember if I've told you this, or if maybe I just thought it. But when I was teaching, I had a student who English was his second language. And so he would always ask questions, we'd be talking about math terms, and he would ask, well, what does that mean? And so what I started doing in class would be, I would tell him, go ahead and look up the dictionary definition, we'll talk about what it means in English, and then we'll relate it to math. And I think that it was such a good class that we had that, because I think it was a lot more rich for people to make the connections between what the word actually means and how it relates to math. One time we were talking about linear regression and he wanted to know, well, what does regression mean? So I said, well, go look it up. So he got his phone and he Googled regression. And the English definition is sort of to make simpler. That's one of them anyway. And that was the one that I used to talk about, you know, we have all these data points, but with linear regression, we draw a simple line through it. So we make the data simpler for us to understand. And so I really love, again, that we're going to talk about this because it is just so fun absolutely
1: yeah and a great example i think sometimes we think that oh i'm learning maths in a foreign language but actually some of the definitions you just need to understand them in both contexts but it gives a lot of ground for people to familiarize themselves and feel more comfortable because it also has so many universal things about it
0: true and Thinking about this, math is the universal language because we can look at like Babylonians, the ancient Egyptians, and we can still understand what they were doing today, even though we don't speak ancient Babylonian. What language is that? Um, but you know, we're able to understand, which is really cool. And similarly with lots of stuff, you know, Cardano or Fermat, even at that time with Europe going through, didn't matter where you were, you could communicate with math, which was really nice. So I love we're talking about Charles Dodgson and this is all about him, but we're like, no, let's make it not about him. <laughs> so he was the oldest of 11 children and was usually responsible for watching his sisters, which led to his love of games and also kids. He was homeschooled until 12 when he went to the rugby school. And I know you have some info about that.
1: Yeah. So, um, I think everyone is familiar with the word rugby because of the game. But rugby is a town in Warwickshire. It has just over 100,000 people living there. The rugby school still exists as a boarding school. And I checked their website and they actually still proudly talk about the act of one of their students. So (laughs) they say William Webb Ellis, who in 1823 picked up the soccer ball and ran with it thus creating the worldwide game of rugby. So it seems like that was the first time someone played something slightly different to football. And, of course, then the rules for the new game called rugby were established in 1839. It was only added as a professional game in 1995. Wow! So it took a long time. And American football is quite similar to rugby, but... Some rules are different, but it looks similar, especially for someone who's not very sporty.
0: Okay, first of all, that is wild to me that in 1823, I have to assume some kid picked up a ball and ran with it. And people were like, "Oh, look, a fun game that is different from soccer." And they decided they were going to play it, and it became partially worldwide phenomenon. But like nobody actually said, "This is an official, straight up game that we are going to recognize until 1995." That is wild.
1: Lots of people were playing rugby in their years in between.
0: But it wasn't recognized, which is crazy to me because just like this one guy was like, I'm going to go run with this ball, this little kid having fun, which I guess is how everything is sort of created and invented, but that it took so long for people to say, okay, we're going to recognize this as a game. And pay people to play. It.
1: So to have professional players
0: that are actually paid to play. That's hilarious. I love that. And that's their claim to fame in rugby is the rugby school and the little kid who played, (laughs) who invented rugby. So although he had a happy childhood until I guess he went to go play rugby all day at the rugby school, he was very shy when he was young and he had a stammer. Few of his siblings also shared that same condition. When he stammered, he actually would pronounce his name Daradajson and so, when the biography was entered in Encyclopedia Britannica, it was actually inserted right before the entry on Dodo. And actually, the Dodo in Alice represents him. I was very intrigued to find out, I learned
1: a bit more about Dodo, which was a large flightless bird. I was found in Mauritius, which is an island in the Indian Ocean. And it's been extinct since 1681. Whoa so long before he wrote his books. And it seems like a lot of habitat consumption by humans, must have been really yummy, and competing for food with newly introduced animals led to to its extinction. So he identified himself with an extinct flightless bird.
0: Aw, poor guy. So let's talk a little math. We'll get back to that dodo. He had some trouble with the calculus of variations, Some of his letters said that he doubt he would actually ever get it. We know that the shortest distance between two points is a line. But how about the shortest curve, right? The surface area of a soap bubble, those sorts of things. And he's very smart. We'll talk more about this in a little bit. But he actually graduated with honors in math in just three years from Christchurch College at Oxford.
1: Yeah, I mean, honors is confusing addition sometimes and people are not sure when it says honors. So it indicates a higher level of achievement than an ordinary bachelor's degree. To obtain a degree with honors, you must complete a greater amount of credits throughout the duration of your studies. And usually here is more like four years of study instead of three to get a degree with honors.
0: Oh, interesting. Here, we tend to have like special honors coursework But I don't know that it adds extra time, at least not in my experience. Not saying that it mightn't, but usually it's just like you would take honors history or regular history and the coursework would be slightly different, but still in the same time frame. That's interesting. The other thing that I am excited about about Christchurch is that the stairway in Christchurch was the inspiration for the Great Hall in Harry Potter. And actually, one of the stained glass windows in the real Great Hall actually celebrates Dodgson's work. Alice Little and some of the features actually helped to inspire the Hatter's Tea Party.
1: And we were wondering if it features in the film, didn't we? And maybe that's our opportunity or excuse to rewatch it with the finger on the pause button. For
0: academic purposes. Purely, yeah. <laughs> So when he was 28, he was a tutor at Christchurch College, forever known as Hogwarts, I guess, working hard, making materials for his students. And I know you and I had actually had a separate conversation about tutors and sort of the different roles, because here in the US, tutors are generally, you know, for enrichment type of stuff, or if you wanted to learn more, spend more time with the content, or maybe get a little extra help, that sort of a thing. And I know that you said it was a little bit different in England. Yeah,
1: in England, it has lots of different meanings for different levels of education. So you can have the form tutor, who is someone who's looking after a class every day, registers the class once or twice a day, is in touch with home, parents, or guardians to see how everything's going. There's online tutoring now. It's quite popular. Lots of people get online tutors to help them with anything they're struggling with academically wise at the university you can have a tutor to support you through your studies it could be at they themselves can be at any level of professorships like from lecturer all the way up to professors that will have a small group of students to support so yeah it gets lots and lots of different meanings
0: that's so interesting what you were saying just now where you were talking about a form tutor so i grew up in belize which was under english rule until 1981 And so we have a lot of those same sort of, you mentioned form tutors. So when in high school, we have first form through fourth form, you know, we have sixth form after high school. It's so cool to talk to you because I grew up with this and then living in the States and there's a different system and then talking to you again. And it kind of feels like going back to my roots. It's super fun. But anyway, back to Dodgson, we're going to get off track and it's going to be my fault. I know it. (laughs) So he was a tutor at Christchurch College. And the way it worked is that his students would be examined on the topics over his materials. And each June, students would dress in Black academic robes and sit the exams. So you just talked about what tutors did. They would be the ones to kind of facilitate this. And this was the gateway into the honors class and other classes because math was very prestigious at the time.
1: I think the at oxford that's very striking is that uh, gowns are still more often than most other universities i love this even people on the go so if you walk around oxford you are
0: quite likely
1: to see people walking wearing their gowns
0: instantly googles jobs.oxford <laughs> 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 to wear a, a gown all the Just that would be amazing amazing <laughs> Also, it takes time to figure out what to wear, you know, you can't wear anything underneath. Exactly. You know, I've been saying this for as long as I've been alive. Like we had to wear uniforms for school And I would come visit my friends up here in the summers and they would be going back to school shopping. And I was like, that just seems very intense. I don't want to make those decisions every single morning. (laughs) It's the same thing. (laughs) I know. We don't appreciate how easy our life
1: is when we have uniforms and we don't have them anymore.
0: A (laughs) hundred percent. And I think, was it dish, I think somebody we talked about that we're the same thing every day. And it was like, you know, one less thing to think about, which was like agreed a thousand percent. But anyway, so Dodson would send his sister, Mary, a list of his mathematical works. And I'm putting that in quotes because these are basically the study guides that he made for his students that we just talked about. And some of them were, you know, syllabus, et cetera, et cetera, done. Uh, ditto on algebra, done will be out this week, I hope. And I love that sort of thing because is he hoping he'll be out? Like, he's like, maybe I'll be out sick this week when the algebra comes out, as we'll see why. Or was it like, I hope to be finished with this thing this week. But either way, I like to envision that it's the first one.
1: <laughs> but also, like, he puts a question mark after done. So who was he asking? <laughs> it's a bit unclear, I think.
0: There were more that he included in these letters. After he writes, like, I finished my syllabus, and I think anyone in education can certainly appreciate, like, thank gosh, I'm done with this syllabus now. But, you know, he closes with, doesn't it look grand? (laughs) And I love that. Also, some of his works were on Euclid, as we'll talk about. He really, really loved Euclid. He had his students memorize so many of Euclid's proofs. And personally, like, I think there is definitely room for necessary for certain memorizations, like things you need to know, like your multiplication tables, right? Like that is sort of the basis of everything. But then other things you can definitely look up as needed. And then he also bought his sister's textbook. And this is my favorite. He scratched out a bunch of the author's notes because, again, he loved Euclid. It was his belief that the author had mangled Euclid. So you're going to read it properly if you're going to read it at all.
1: <laughs> hmm. I think this gives us a nice mixture of how he was doubting himself on one side, but on the other end of the spectrum, he applauded himself <laughs> for great work. And I suppose maybe this could also be a good way if one wants to keep improving.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. And while he didn't overall change the world of mathematics, it's undeniable that he was very talented in it. In fact, he introduced a variation on Cramer's rule. Yeah, and Kramer's rule
1: is a way to solve simultaneous equations without the hassle of elimination or substitution. And I think lots of students would be very relieved to find out about
0: that. I really enjoyed teaching Kramer's rule. So here there is like this little brute force time where we do elimination, substitution, you know, for these systems of equations. And the thing takes like a page. And then we build up to matrices and we do brute force one or two of them where we have the students go through and they do every single row operation. We do Gaussian and then Gauss Jordan. And it's kind of like programming. So, folks, just Google matrices and maybe you'll see like Keanu Reeves in the matrix. But if you Google the plural, you will likely see the mathematical part of it. But all those numbers, the green numbers that are kind of going in the matrix, that is a matrix but it is a very labor intensive process. There is no way in the world that I would recommend someone do this by hand. It's definitely much more useful when it comes to computer work. So Kramer's rule is cool because you do a little bit of work and you get the answer much faster. So it's honestly, it's one of my favorite things to do because everybody goes through all the pain of all those things that we just talked about. And then we show them Kramer's rule. It's like, oh, why couldn't we have done this before? (laughs) Yeah, why did you torture me? (laughs) Exactly. So when he taught children, he would mix in stories and puzzles. He may have been a pioneer in this, but it's believed that he planned to publish a book of these stories and puzzles when he retired.
1: Hmm. I think that's absolutely an amazing idea. But like many great ideas, it is hard to think of a time when it did not exist. There is a famous problem that is nearly 4,000 years old. From the ring mathematical papyrus, when Egyptians, ancient Egyptians mixed houses with mice, with barley, to create a puzzle, but
0: still mixing things up
1: and presenting it mathematically took a really long time to take off.
0: Oh my gosh. First off, I feel like I'm suffering from huge FOMO because I have never heard of that puzzle. And now I'm going to go Google it so I can see it and learn it. But also like I wonder if it's similar to the thing where, you know, you have like the duck and the cabbage and the wolf and you have to get them across the lake and you can only carry one thing at a time. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's problem seventy nine from Green Mathematical Papyrus.
0: Hold on, I gotta write this down. Problem seventy nine. Seventy nine, yeah. From real mathematical papyrus. Got it.
1: Yeah. This papyrus actually features in the History of the World in a Hundred Objects as well. So it's Really important. Nice. The problem goes something like there are seven houses. In each house, there are seven cats. Each cat has eaten seven mice. Each mouse would have eaten seven grains of barley, and each grain of barley would have produced seven hecats, which is a measurement unit for volume. And the question is, what is the sum of all the enumerated things? And basically, you have to do parts of seven and then add all those things up. In a papyrus that contained mostly very practical problems about taxation, about food production, about redistributing land after the Nile have flooded, and so on. So, there was no practical purpose in that problem. You cannot add houses with mice. The yeah. answer will mean nothing. But it's believed that that's one of the first problems in the history of maths that has a bit like story behind it, a bit of playfulness, a bit of curiosity and not just maths for the sake of we need to solve this problem to get on with our lives.
0: That's cool. The other thing, too, is like, true, you can't add houses and mice. They're not the same quantity, but... In that problem, there's still a relation. So it still gives you something and how they're interconnected. I love that. Oh, my God. Okay. I'm going to go have fun with that later. (laughs) Speaking of fun problems, ah, I love this one. He would use the color map problem as a game. Essentially, you draw a map divided into countries it can have as many countries or as few countries as you like, and then you color it using as few colors as possible. The only rule is that two adjacent countries have to have different colors. <laughs> and so how many colors do you need? There is an answer to this, of course, as we know. Just one answer.
1: <laughs> so the name of the theorem, I don't think there's ever been a theorem with a most destructive name on this one, but I love it as well because... I think mathematicians were interested in how to colour in a map and so on. And they were interested in colouring, but not in a frivolous way, in actual way of like investigation. Were they trying to save people from using too many colours? I don't know. (laughs) So if we imagine any division of a plane, that is to say a flat surface, how many colours do we need so that two areas that share a border do not have the same colour? So just like in a map where you want to be able to tell countries apart,
0: Right.
1: I've been using this in my workshops and so on, and I've asked people to take a guess how many colors do they think are absolutely necessary to, say, color the map of the entire world. I bet you get, like, all kinds of answers. All kinds of answers. I think varied from 5 to even 30. I don't know if there were some younger people that said even more than that. (laughs) But interestingly, 5 was actually the first guess of the mathematicians that decided to embark on this exploration in the first place.
0: That's cool.
1: You can use shapes of increasing complexity and color them in and see how many do you need and always aim for the lowest number of colors. Can we now reveal the answer? (laughs) Should we reveal it? Yes, let's do it. How many? So hopefully everyone has had a guess in their head by now. So, And assuming they haven't heard of the theorem before, it's called the Four-colour (laughs) theorem. Any map can be coloured in with just four colours to tell the countries apart. But then it brings us to a new question. What happens with the oceans and the sea? And will that be counted as a colour or not? And I've actually seen a case where they used four colours, including blue, for the sea. But it's impossible to do the rest of the divisions of the continents without the fourth color, without the blue. So you end up with a world map that looks like there are lots of massive lakes in the middle of Africa or in the middle of Asia, and so on.
0: <laughs> Thinking through like the ocean and all the bodies of water as like one country, I suppose that's not too bad.
1: Yeah, but the problem is you end up with a blue in a country that is a country, it's not a lake. So in the case where you have a key, I suppose we could say that if there's a key, there's something, blue is the sea, then you cannot have the four colour theorem anymore because you put an, an additional restriction. With any subdivision of the plane with no restrictions, if four is the answer, but with the restrictions, signaling features, I suppose, yeah, you need to either not count the C or count it and end up with five.
0: When we talked about this before, I really love that, like, we got into this whole, like, should we count the seas? Should we not count the seas? Functionally speaking, this is a fun question just to, like, think about. It's a fun question to noodle on because mathematically speaking, when we think about the plane and you think about any world map, the ocean itself could just be one large country, I guess, or segment, or it could just be the background. Like, what if the seas were white, you know, it's just another part of the plane, which is cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth even trying out to color things yourself and see how many. It's actually harder than it sounds.
0: Sidebar on this. So I like playing like whatever solitaire and those free little games on your phone, like the apps. And free ones often comes with ads. And the amount of times I have gotten an ad For the four color, it's not called that, obviously, but it's like here's a bunch of just shapes, you know, interconnected shapes connected. See how many times you can color this. And every single time, every time I want to buy it just so I could play around with it. There's no reason for me to do that. I know the answer. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, back to Lewis Carroll. We already know that he was good at telling stories with words. But he was also upping his game to tell stories through pictures. He was a well-known portrait photographer. He photographed Alfred Lord Tennyson and the Crown Prince Frederick of Denmark, the Kim Kardashians of their day.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's interesting to think what was his motivation behind this. Or maybe it's just the thrill of amusing something that photography was just around at the time.
0: There's something we're going to talk about later that I'll mention about this sort of photography thing. You made a point about his descriptions of things and, you know, the visuals of it. And so I'm eager to talk about that when we get to it. But lots of people tried to get a handle on sort of who he actually was, but there's no real consensus because he had a lot of conflicting personality traits. So here's one biographer who calls him a wit, a gentleman, a bore and an egoist, a spoiled child, but not selfish. He was a meek professor who didn't like attention, but then here he is running around getting famous people to pose for his photographs. He didn't sign autographs and he hated that people knew him by sight. The plight of every celebrity, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I cannot imagine a combination of spoiled but not selfish. I mean, these two sound as contradictory as it gets. How can you describe someone as spoiled? but not Not selfish. selfish.
0: Yeah, it's hilarious. And, you know, we talked about telling stories with pictures. He was into realism as well as words. You know, you think about how creative his stories are, but for everything, he was definitely a logician and a mathematician that was fascinated by, frankly, the illogic of nonsense.
1: And I think that's one of the most fun things about his writing. I have a paper quote with this <laughs> from Tweedledee's poem in Alice Through the Looking Glass can I read it? Yes tell <laughs> yeah. us your poem so but four young oysters hurried up all eager for the treat their coats were brushed their faces washed their shoes were clean and neat and this was odd because you know they hadn't any feet it cracked me up every time I read it. Like the first time, I think I was just laughing out loud. You <laughs> know, Like, how does it occur to someone to write about clean shoes on creatures that have no feet? <laughs> like, I cannot get my head around that.
0: How do you land
1: on that idea?
0: It's too funny. It's like, what are the things that you want to do? to get ready for something that is important to you. He talks about all the care that's taken, their coats brushed, their faces washed, and then, oh, also, shoes. (laughs) Why? (laughs) It's too funny. And you think about this, right? Like, he's this very logical person, this mathematician, and then he's got this nonsense like we just talked about, and here we're over here like, Enjoying this, but at the same time, like it is very contradictory. So perhaps he was spoiled, but not selfish a wit, a gentleman, a bore, an ego, all of these contradictory things. He was very shy. He could sit for hours at a party, but when kids showed up, his shyness and stammering would just vanish and he would play with them and tell stories. And it's funny because I really enjoy asking ridiculous questions. And again, I've said this a lot recently, but that's one of my favorite things about Dungeons and Dragons. When we play D&D, people ask all kinds of weird, random questions, and it makes sense in the context of what you're doing. Whereas if you go in the real world and you ask someone like, what's your third favorite dinosaur? Like no one has an answer prepared. They're like, why do you even care about that? Why are you, this is nonsense, you know? But kids, if you ask a kid that, they certainly would have probably stack ranked you know, like their top 10 or something. And I think, you know, kids aren't afraid to think. And he really seemed to enjoy, like you just said, the oysters and the feet. He really enjoyed this sort of illogical nonsense.
1: I think that's possibly what made his books so loved by children, because most children's stories at the time were written with the express intention to provide a moral compass, something which he detested. There is some suggestion that he took some inspiration from Kingsley's The Water Babies that was published two years before Alice, that was taking place in a fantasy world as well. But that one was, again, trying to provide moral compass. His was just for fun. And that was the big thing that changed.
0: Gosh, that's interesting. I think of like all the stories I read, all the Grimm's, all the Hans Christian Andersen, you know, all of those. And you're right. Every single one of them was in very concise, short, in and out. There's your moral. Don't lie. Be good to people. (laughs) Which, again, I love those stories. I absolutely adore them. Once Dodgson took a girl, he knew to see a static panorama of Niagara Falls. I love the interaction that he has with these kids. Like, and they think this is a good continuation of the fact that you don't have to have some sort of moral with this story I'm about to tell. So there was a dog at the front of the image and he would tell her stories about this dog being real, but just being trained very well to stand there for hours without moving He talked about if they waited long enough, they would see an attendant bring him a bone. He was allowed a certain number of hours off each day when his brother, who unfortunately was rather restless, would take his place. And one time, this badly behaved animal, the brother, on one occasion jumped right out of the panorama among the onlookers, attracted by the sight of a little girl's sandwich, because apparently, I guess, the brother didn't get a bone? I don't know. (laughs) But all of a sudden, he looked around, saw that a dozen grownups and children had gathered around and were listening with every appearance of amused interest because everybody loves stories, right? And so instantly he began to stammer and completely lost the magic. And one of the quotes from Little Girl was, it was not Mr. Carroll, but a very confused Mr. Dodgson who took me by the hand and led me quickly from the scene. Certainly he was a born storyteller. If he didn't have the stutter and shyness, probably he'd have made a great actor. And I know what you're going to say with this next story, but I'm still going to tell it because I love it. No,
1: it survived for a reason, so you should definitely tell it.
0: I will, but I'm glad you're here to pull me down from pie in the sky. Queen Victoria loved Alice, and there's a story that goes. Queen Victoria loved the Alice book, Alice in Wonderland. And she asked for a standing order of the next book, which was a condensation of determinants. And so she gets this book and she's not amused. But in any case, you know, you look at the books that he did write, and he's proof that you can certainly be a mathematician as well as have a sense of humor and imagination.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I read a bit about this story and it may be an anecdote rather than true, because Williamson did not want to be identified as Lewis Carroll in his everyday life. So he even refused to have his caricature published in Vanity Fair after the phenomenal success of his first book. So connecting Lewis Carroll with mathematics is somewhat unlikely. In his work as a mathematician, he was very reserved. And it seems that he himself denied franking their queen like this. But the story must have existed since he was around. So it's quite amazing how these uh, stories survive, and uh, what was the source, and why it's still around?
0: You're right about that. We talked about the stammering. We talked about all these things. This is not the man that is going to sit here and send a copy. He's like, "Oh, the queen wants my second book. Let me send her this thing that she'll probably hate." You're <laughs> right. It is completely out of character for him. And when I first heard about Lewis Carroll, equivalent Charles Dodgson, I don't know, I think I was in my 20s, maybe like it wasn't something the first time I read Alice when I first got into math, which were two separate time periods, I should quantify. But you know, when I read Alice, I never was like, Oh, this was written by a mathematician. And then when I started learning math and learning about the mathematicians, Lewis Carroll certainly wasn't in there so definitely he did a good job of and it was such a nice surprise to discover that they were one and the same because there's so much to love but I think that is a great place to stop this episode because we have lots of fun stuff to talk about in the next two episodes yeah can't wait (laughs) Joanna tell us where we can find you I will also put it in the show notes so they can click on it but tell us where they can find you
1: Perfect! So, there's lots of information and news and blog entries on my website, IoannaGeorgiou.com. You will find links to my two books, Mathematical Adventures and Peculiar Deaths of Famous Mathematicians, published by math specialist publisher Queen and uh, illustrated by for Young. And yeah, I have some events coming up, so please check them out!
0: Yay! Awesome, awesome! Thanks for joining us for today's episode of Infinitely Irrational can't get enough of the math and the fun? Visit us on the web at infinitelyirrational.com for the math and research behind the stories. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or email at podcast at infinitelyirrational.com. If you love this episode, subscribe, follow, and share. See you soon for the next one.